Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from. And thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today is my interview with Lydia Bastianich. We speak about her childhood in communist Yugoslavia, her life as a refugee, and also what it means to finally feel like you belong. You know, it didn't take me long to understand that America welcomed people like us and wanted us and needed us. And we, we, you know, sort of found the Italian community of immigrants like we were. And soon enough, we found the comfort of life and setting roots once and being in peace again. Also coming up, we discuss the ethics of cooking lobsters, and we whip up molletes, the Mexican grilled cheese sandwich. But now it's my interview with Tyler Malik. Malik co-owns Salt & Straw, a West Coast-based ice cream chain, famous for serving unusual flavors, such as bourbon cherry, stout sorbet, and chicken liver. His new cookbook, Salt and Straw, is a walk on the wild side of ice cream. Tyler, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. So exciting. Let's just start at the beginning. You believe in community-based ice cream shops. You believe in five-gallon batches. You're doing it very differently than the playbook for how to start a franchise of uh, ice cream stores. Yeah, 
I love this idea of like taking people on journeys through ice cream, right? It's, it's such a fun, like approachable food in this world. So when you talk about journeys, uh, which you do in, in your book, wh- what does that mean? A, a unique flavor is a journey. How is it a journey? Yeah, I think like the cool thing about coming into Salt and Straw is that it's almost like you're go- getting away for a for a minute. It's um, we almost relate this experience of coming and tasting ice cream to like going on vacation, and we take that very seriously. Like people take you know an hour, hour, hour and a half just tasting and learning about all the different ice cream flavors that we put together and the amazing like artisans that we're working with in the city. I like to say we use our ice cream almost as a canvas to tell the stories. So local food makers, um, maybe a really important food movement in the city, and also use it to talk about nonprofits in the city and some of the things that we think are really important for people to learn about. So let's talk to someone who wants to make ice cream at home and who's had ill luck. Mm -hmm. Ice cream is about creating ice crystals of the right size, right? That's one of the issues. You got it. Yeah. So is the is the speed at which the crystals form important? And if so, how do you manage that? Uh, yes. For me, I think the most important thing you can start with with ice cream is your foundation recipe. And from that point, it really matters what cream, milk, and sugar we're using and what ratio we're using them in. So finding that perfect foundation recipe is really the biggest challenge in the spot where I think people have the biggest troubles with making ice cream. And if you start with that one foundation, you can start playing with any flavor profile you want, which actually becomes like this amazing process. Like you can put a little bit of strawberry juice in it, make strawberry ice cream. You can put a little bit of chocolate in it, make chocolate ice cream. You can put a little bit of carrot juice in it, make carrot ice cream. You know, like however you want to have fun with this, it's really, really freeing and eye-opening. So uh, let's talk about fat and flavor. You, you you compare gelato to sorbet and how the flavor with fat lasts longer than sorbet. Could you explain how that works? Yeah. Um, fat itself doesn't have a ton of flavor, but what it does really, really well is it holds flavors to your taste buds for a longer period of time and kind of gives you that unctuous feel, uh, which is really, really great with you know, some of those expensive, delicate flavors like vanilla extract, for example, or saffron or things like that. And that's why when you see like cream sauces with saffron or cream sauce, you know, or ice cream with vanilla, that's like the most precious, beautiful way you can showcase that ingredient. But on the flip side, we have ingredients like strawberries or pears or things like that that are really, really light in flavor and not quite as aromatic. And so when we're working with strawberries, for example, and I really want that brightness of the strawberries to like just punch through, I can take my cream level down mm. and the fat level down because I don't want it coating our taste buds. And I can increase the strawberries so that the first thing mm. you get hit with is this like essence of strawberry. Uh, here's a practical shopping question, which is, uh, what ice cream maker would you suggest people buy? I've never had much luck with the ones where you put it in the freezer overnight. And that's probably because yeah. my freezer isn't cold enough. But um, c- can you make good ice cream with those freezer overnight inserts? Um, absolutely. <laughs> yes, you can. It's a little harder. And you can only make one a day or one every other day, which is actually like a challenge for me, obviously. Um Kim and I, my cousin, we started the company just with, uh, you know, a bunch of those like pre-frozen ice cream bowls. Uh, and we we bought like four of them from Goodwill because as it turns out, a lot of people buy ice cream makers and get scared and donate them. And uh, so that's how we started the company. 
So when uh, your cousin Kim, you talked about starting this business, uh, you sent a long list of 50 or 60 flavor ideas. Uh, and I and you mentioned them in the book: chicken liver and maple syrup, um, licorice fern, <laughs> That's a good one, bone marrow, yeah. and bourbon cherries. And you still got hired, uh, or you still became <laughs> part of the business. So he's what, it was what like a bad thing. Yeah, she used to go like, "This guy's crazy, but he's he's kind of creative." What, what was her reaction? You know, I I still to this day am not sure what she was thinking, and why she hired me. But we've somehow made it work for the past uh, eight years. Do you have odd flavors that end up actually being bestsellers? Yeah, I think for us, probably that one flavor that really caught and has a cult following is our honey lavender ice cream. It like caught on and now it's in all of our shops. We sell it all up and down the West Coast. And um, it's like one of those ones where people just cherish their flavor. Are there flavors, savory flavors like the chicken liver? (laughs) I mean, is there something really oddball that also has taken off? Oh, absolutely. Well, and this is where it's fun for us because we change our menu every month. And that month-long menu is really just focused on, like, what's the zeitgeist of the moment? So Thanksgiving is probably our biggest one. Thanksgiving is where the flavors get a little bit more unique and we have a ton of fun. So there is one that's actually made with turkey skin. So we actually, like, render down the turkey skin and cook it into a, a buttered brittle. Um, and we fold that into a turkey fat caramel ice cream. <laughs> Only you would think of rendering down turkey skin and putting <laughs> that into an ice cream. Well, now <laughs> you're going to be dreaming about it. You're welcome. Probably. There's something so freeing about ice cream in that, like, from a food perspective, it's the only food in the entire world where you can come in and you can actually taste as many flavors as you want and still get, you know, vanilla or chocolate brownie. You know, you can't do that at a restaurant. You can't go in and say, like, I just want a spoonful of that bone marrow dish and then I'm going to get the chicken. So what's coming up later this year? What are some flavors you've yet to produce you're thinking about? Oh, we're having a ton of fun on flavors this year. In one of our story hunting sessions, we found this lady in... Um, San Francisco that's making natto. She's one of the only people outside of uh, Japan that's making natto, which is kind of like a fermented soybean. And so we blend that with a little bit of bananas and kind of make like a natto banana bread Mm. and pair it with pickled strawberries and ice cream. It's mind-blowing. So cool. Mm. Um, So so let's go back to the overall concept. You're, you're using ice cream, a local ice cream store, is a way of mm-hmm. telling stories about the people in that community, right? Yeah, I love that. Ice cream is just the palette on which you're working. Yeah, well, thank you. That's what, everything we ever wanted. I mean, to create this, like, focal point in a community where people can come in and kind of let the, the, their food community be reflected back on them is, um, that was, like, our dream. Tyler Malik, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for coming on Milk Street. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Tyler Malik, co-owner of Salt and Straw. His new book is entitled Salt and Straw Ice Cream Cookbook. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moult, and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. But before we take any calls, I have a question. Uh Uh-oh. So what is your favorite, favorite tool in the kitchen? Let's start with small and large. Small first. 
Uh, my favorite tool in the kitchen is going to have to be the Instant Read thermometer because I use it for so much. I don't use it just for meats. But you don't? It, Tell us other things. If I'm baking a rustic bread, mm-hmm. I try to get the 205 inside, American-style bread, which has got fat in it, 195, cheesecake, 155. Obviously, a custard, 175. Yeah. yeah. 180, it'll start to, to mm-hmm. curdle on Do you. Do thing. Cook. I think it's really helpful, and it's, it's one of those things that takes the guesswork out. Okay. How about big tool? It's my Nakiri knife. It's a Japanese knife. It's a two-inch high blade. It's sort of halfway between a regular knife and a uh, cleaver. It's a very thin metal, so it glides through vegetables. It's a vegetable knife. And it has the classic wa Japanese handle. It's an octagonal wooden handle. It's a beautiful wood handle. Uh, it's very light, six ounces, and it just makes life in the kitchen so much easier. It's Got real it. pleasure. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Time to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Maureen. Hi, Maureen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Vero Beach in mm-hmm. Florida. That's a good place to be calling from. How- <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, a wonderful place. Not even good. How can we help you? <laughs> I was wondering, what is your favorite go-to meal for a Sunday afternoon? Who's cooking? Yeah, that would be my first question. <laughs> Who's cooking? Uh, I always assume that it's one of the two of you. Actually, on a Sunday afternoon, I like to cook something low and slow. So mm-hmm. we have it Sunday night, and then it's something I can repurpose during the week. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to do a stir fry or something sauteed. I'll do something that's a stew or a braise. I'll uh, do black beans, for example, that I've soaked overnight, and, and then I cook them and use them in lots of dishes during the week, that sort of thing. So it's usually low and slow. That's what I like to do. Oh, or nice. a stew, which you can then end up using in lots of different ways. That's what I would do. Sarah? Well, I don't think this is the answer you were looking for, Maureen, but I just love making soup. And the husband will consider it dinner as long as I throw some protein in there, which is usually in the pork department. So it's either Canadian bacon, one of my favorites, or pancetta, or or even bacon, bacon. But then there'll be carrots and onions and fennel or whatever else, you know, the vegetables I find. And then I throw in you know, some sort of bean, like a white bean, and then um, maybe a potato as well. And throw in, if I have a Parmesan rind left, I throw that in to flavor it. And of course, tons of onions and garlic to begin with, and then some chicken broth and maybe some tomato. And I make this big pot of soup, and then I take some out and puree it. Or I use an immersion blender and puree some of it to thicken it a little bit, but I don't completely, you know, puree the whole thing so it's creamy and crunchy. Yeah, and, texture. and then I'll grate some more Parmesan cheese because why not? And I'll make my <laughs> faux garlic bread because I live in New York City and we don't have a good exhaust system. Chris, um, you like soup too. You probably would have liked what I just described as I would have liked what you just described. Yeah, I just want something in a Dutch oven. It goes into the oven for two it to three hours. does its own that, thing. Whatever it is, that's what I would do. Yeah. We did a, yeah. a pork shoulder recently. Yeah. With miso and gochujang, the Korean. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? Gochujang, yeah, and it has sort of a sweet, spicy paste, and had about four ingredients. And you walked away and came back in two and a half, three hours, and that would be a great Sunday afternoon dish. Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It's quite good. What do you make on a Sunday afternoon? Yes, exactly. Now you have to answer the question. Your turn. Actually, yeah. Well, um, you know, I was a working mom, so Sunday was my day to cook. So I would put something in the oven that I could use for a couple of meals. Eh, And what I would like to do is I would pick it up big cast iron 
And then I would do like mushrooms, peppers, onions, cut up a chicken, put in a red gravy and throw that in the oven. So I would serve that with pasta or with some rice. And it's just perfect. Yeah. Sounds yummy. Mm -hmm. When you say red gravy, you need a tomato sauce. Yes. Okay. You're Italian-American. My dad, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's yeah. sort of so Sunday so gravy, cool. but not really. Yeah. Yeah. And it was definitely better every time you warmed it up. Oh, I bet. Well, that sounds yummy, mm-hmm. too. I, I'd opt into that as well. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing. Maureen, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Take care. Our okay. pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or just want to know why I hate bay leaves, give us a ring at 855 426 9843. That number, once again, is 855 426 9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kate. Hi, Kate. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Antioch, Illinois. How can we help you today? Well, I um, peeling an onion. I get so much waste after, you know, you cut one end off and you try and peel off the skin. And I end up taking like three layers of onion with me. Any tricks, any tips on how to be more efficient? Well, depending on whether I'm going to slice or chop an onion. So you know when you chop an onion, you leave it attached at the root end? Exactly. Okay, and then you chop off the other end. I always then go cut it in half through the root end straight down, you know, in preparation for then chopping it. This is pole to pole. Pole to pole, thank you. That was what I was looking for. Right. And then I peel it. Yeah, and I get that, but... How do you get just the skin off and not take off a couple layers of the onion with it? Well, I don't... (laughs) Actually, I thought by cutting, you know, rather than leaving it whole and peeling it, having it and peeling it makes it a heck of a lot easier. So that's the best I can offer. It really depends on the onion. I I cut off both ends, cut it in half. Well, that's if you're slicing it. If you're chopping it, you wouldn't do that. And then peel off the papery skin. The thing I find sometimes if the onion's a little old, you do want to remove, actually, yeah. one of the outer layers because well, it's true. kind of gnarly. Yes, because some of them yeah. can be kind of dry. But I have the same thing with fresh shallots, too, the same issue. That's why I figured I'd ask the experts, see if there's any any great way of not wasting. The only, the only thing you could do is if you have a very short paring knife, like a 2-inch or 2.5-inch paring knife that's mm-hmm. very sharp, you can use that and that also... Sort of get under it. Because sometimes what you're saying is the papery outer skin sticks to the next uh, exactly. layer. So I think a sharp paring knife would help in that case. There is a trick I learned. There's an Austrian chef who has a cookbook I use occasionally. He said something interesting. He said, don't peel the onion when it goes into the water with the beef because it'll be discarded later. And the yellow, oh. if it's a yellow onion, the skin actually helps color and flavor the broth. You know, it's funny. And so if you're going to yeah. discard it, you don't have to peel it, which is actually pretty good advice. So right. that's one time you don't have to worry about it. Mm. True. But so. most of the time I'm either chopping or that's dicing true. or, you know, grating. Or you but can the, start composting. If I could give you a tip about, because I have my new improved method of chopping or dicing an onion. Once you've mm-hmm. cut it in half, cut off the, I cut off the ends, you peel it. You put it down, obviously, on the flat side, the root end right. away from you. And then I cut through with sort of a rocking motion. So the tip of the knife starts up in the air, and you go through mm-hmm. the onion, not cutting all the way through the end, but close to it. Then you turn it and cut it 90 degrees. I do not make the third cut, which is the cut that's parallel to the board. 
Right. Because the onion comes in layers and it really does it for you. So I only do two cuts now. And if you use oh. that rocking motion where you start with sort of the heel of the blade, the part of the onion closest to you, pull it through towards you, pulling the tip down, the tip will go right through the other end of the onion, almost at the end. It's very easy to do. And also the knife is in the onion the whole time, so you're not going to cut yourself. Use your knuckles. So once you get used to that method, it's foolproof and it's really quick. Yeah, I'll give that a try. So you're being economical with the movement as well as with the food itself. Well, if you were in a Japanese kitchen, they would think that was important. Yes. Anyway, there you go. More than you need to know. Perfect. Take care. Okay. Okay, Kate. I appreciate you both. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Great. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Chef Lydia Bastianich. That's right after the break. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Lydia Bastianich is arguably America's leading authority on Italian cooking. She's hosted five television shows, including Lydia's Kitchen. She's written 16 books as well. Her latest work is called My American Dream. Lydia, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Um, I'd like to start at the very beginning, because I thought the, the first half of the book where you're talking about your childhood, it was just really compelling and full of details about food and cooking that I think most of us are unfamiliar with. So Istria, that was part of Italy until right after the Second World War, and then it went to Yugoslavia. Could you just set the scene for us about about where it is uh, and what happened during that period after World War II? Okay. So if you're looking at the booth of Italy, In the right-hand corner, right across from Venice, you'll get into a little peninsula called Istria. And on the tip of that peninsula, 
is Pola, Pula now, but it was Pola, and that's where I was born. And Istria and part of Dalmatia was all part of uh, Italy uh, until after World War II. You know, Italy was on the losing side. And in 1947, the peace treaty ultimately delineated the border that came down from Austria and down where the border is now, more or less, but it came down and it ended uh, where Trieste. Trieste remained Italian, and the rest to the right was given to the newly formed communist Yugoslavia under Marshal Tito. And your mother at that time was pregnant with you, and then the border closed six or seven months after you were born. So your family stayed, and then you were behind the border and uh, Tito's Yugoslavia. Correct, yeah. You know, yes, I had a, a brother, and then I, I was coming along. And, uh, you know, where is my mother going to go into the world in that condition? And she remained. And, yes, we were caught behind the Iron Curtain. The Iron Curtain went down. And there's quite a few ethnic Italians that remained behind the border. You write, I love that old corn husk mattress and still remember cuddling next to my grandmother on it. The aroma of the corn and the rattling of the dry leaves lulled me to sleep night after night. Yes, the, you know, because in the summertime, the woolen mattresses were untuffed. You know, they, they would uh, open them up and mm -hmm. wash the wool and whatever. And uh, we had uh, mattresses made out of dried corn husks. And it was a fluffy kind of, a, you know, a really noisy mattress, every move you heard. <laughs> But not only, not only that, the aroma, the smell. Mm. And yeah, as a child, you know, your imagination, my imagination was going wild between the smell and all the, the noises and all of that, you know. And then I imagined wolves coming, you know, all kinds of things <laughs> that a child would imagine. So you lived in town uh, and your grandmother lived just outside of town on a small farm with a courtyard. So you spent a lot of time in both places. Um, just describe your grandmother's place, which is still in your family. What, what was it like? Well, the courtyard is where everything happened. You know, in the courtyard, we lived, and my, my, my grandfather's sister lived, and the cousin. And then further up towards the pineta, we would call the pine woods, uh, they were the, the animals, the pens of the different animals. And then we had fig trees, two big trees, like big umbrellas that would keep us shaded all summer. And so the figs would plop down when they were mature, and the animals would were allowed to come down and to eat. So the chickens, the ducks, everybody would... And kind of we would run in this courtyard between the chickens, the ducks, the geese, the cat, the dog, and so on. And it, it, was, it was a beautiful courtyard. It was kind of my haven, if you will. You say breakfast was a simple affair when they were pasteurizing milk, although you sometimes drank it fresh. There was a crust that formed on the top, and you'd spoon that on bread with some fig jam from the fallen figs. And that was one of your favorite breakfasts. It absolutely was. You know, we had goats. And so in the morning, we used to milk the goats and then, of course, boil the milk. And once the, the kind of the milk raises up, you know, to a boil, you have to be careful. It doesn't go over. You pull it off. And as it resettles in the pan, this crust of the cream forms on top. And it's the most delicious mm. heavy cream, creme fraiche, but warm. And uh, grandma would let it settle. And then she would scoop it with the spoon on mm. top of the bread that she made and uh, 
fig jam, absolutely, but honey on top of that. If everything else failed, just sprinkling a little bit of sugar. And that was my breakfast. So this all ends because your father was jailed for a month. Uh, Your mother was a teacher, and they were a little suspect of intellectuals and wanted her to teach about communism, that you had to get out. So you did get out to Trieste, saying you had a sick relative, and you ended up in a former Nazi camp, San Saba. That must have been quite a shock. It was. So my parents, uh, without telling my brother and I their plan, uh, we did go. My mother, my brother, and I went to visit supposedly a sick aunt in Trieste on the other side of the border. You know, the border went down, and wherever you were, that's where you remained. And she was on in Trieste. They wouldn't allow the whole family to go because they knew that the whole family wouldn't come back. So my father remained as a hostage. And so we went to Trieste. We visited, you know, my, my aunt. She didn't seem sick to me, but yes, two weeks later, my father escaped. He physically escaped the border, and the dogs were running after him, and uh, they shot at him, but he made it. But my father had no papers. Our visas were expiring, and if they caught us, they could have repatriated us. So my parents knew that they didn't want to go back to Yugoslavia, and they went and asked for asylum to the police. And uh, uh, at that point, you know, having no papers or anything, they put us in what was a, a political refugee camp. And yes, it was the remains of the of a, of a Nazi concentration camp in Trieste. Now it's a museum. And we stay there for two years awaiting a possible visa to, to go uh, someplace in the world. We were lucky enough that we got a visa to come to the United States. But here you were, having lived even under... Tito's regime, the courtyard, your grandmother's farm, uh, it was idyllic. And now you end up in this red brick, you know, former concentration camp. How well did you adapt to that or did you ever adapt to that? Well, you know, uh, yeah, in retrospect, looking at it, I think whatever happened to me, you know, it, it was a part of who I am and it has taught me much. But when we were first there in that camp, uh, I really felt as a child very frightened. All night, people crying, kids crying, going up and down. Uh, I, I think when I look at it now, it was a learning experience about human uh, beings and, you know, having and not having and appreciating family and the closeness of support. And then ultimately, when in 1958, we got the visa, Dwight Eisenhower was the president, you know, I recall, then there was joy. You know, it didn't take me long to to understand that America welcomed people like us and wanted us and needed us. And we, we, you know, sort of found the Italian community of immigrants like we were. And soon enough, uh, we found the comfort of maybe uh, a life and setting roots once and being in peace again. So you end up in New York. You live in North Bergen, right across on the Palisades from Manhattan. Yeah, can you imagine this this little kids from Brussels coming in smack in the middle of Manhattan? The Empire State Building wasn't that far away from us. And I remember, you know, my my neck hurting from looking. Everything was so high. And uh, here we would go to to the social worker 
and uh, they would uh, speak in Italian, instruct my mother, gave her some money to feed us. They told us, uh, you know, there's a deli there. Uh, there, there was horn and hearted on the corner. So one, my 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 kind of first eating uh, experience, sit down in America, was at the horn and harder. And I, you know, putting the nickel and opening those doors, right. my brother and I had a had a blast. You know, I, I remember when I was young going to Horn and Hard Art, too. It was the only automat I actually went to. Uh, but I love the way you describe it as a mausoleum of food. I just thought <laughs> all those little boxes with the glass fronts. Yeah. And you also, I mean, you Jello know, was one of your, you and your brother just thought that was terrific, right? Oh, yeah. This this wobbly stuff, you know, red and orange and green and whatever it was. And then it melted in your mouth and it was sweet. You know, we never had anything like that, you know, uh, this kind of food. There were a lot of new things, sweet potatoes I didn't have until I came here. Spam, and, uh, American cheese, spa- Wonder Bread, I, those are on your top list. Absolutely. Right? Spam. I loved Spam. <laughs> I love peanut butter. We didn't have peanut butter in there. Peanut butter and jelly on Wonder Bread and white bread, mm. you know, the whole thing you can squash into one little ball <laughs> and eat it. And uh, But I loved, I still love peanut butter and jelly. You talk a lot in the book, and you're obviously, this is one of the foundations of, of Lydia, is enjoying and appreciating the simple things in life. When you go back to your grandmother's courtyard and the food, et cetera, is it possible years later with so much abundance to still live a life where the simple things in life are at your core, at your being? Chris, I, I, I think eating simple is eating in season. Not having things flown from across the world to you. It is respecting the animals. You know, we had baby goats. As kids, we used to play with them. And then it came Sunday or Easter Sunday, and that little goat ended up to be the dinner. And somehow, you know, you accept and you realize and you are grateful to that animal because they kept you alive. And all of these things, even my style of cooking, I am here to exalt what nature gives us when it's at its best, when it's perfectly ripe, when it's, you know, in season. And then, you know, as a chef, it, it's not hard. It's not hard to turn it into a delicious meal. You know, you had the benefit of a childhood where you were deeply involved with food and cooking and animal husbandry and picking the mulberries and the figs and the cherries. And What about someone who grows up in a family that doesn't cook? Do you think one can develop that repertoire as an adult and create their own traditions? Or is this something that you have to experience as a child? No, I think it would be unfair to say, no, you cannot because times have changed. I think there has to be an effort from people like me, like you, you know, that that have worked with food, bring that information ever more. So I think it stands in us to continue that. I think that the farmer, going back to the farmer and letting the farmer do what they love, that kind of brings it back. You know, Chris, as I travel around America, and certainly you do, Uh, I get a lot of feedback from people 
that in America still there is this experience of a farm. They say, you know, oh, we had the chickens, we had uh, the pigs, we have, and it's coming back, and I love seeing that. Lydia, it's been an enormous pleasure uh, having you here on Milk Street. Thank you. Oh, Chris, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Chef Lydia Bastianich. Her latest book is My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. Lydia still owns her grandmother's farm just outside of Pula, Croatia, just across the Adriatic from Venice, which, of course, begs the question, if the people of our past are now gone, can any of us really return home? You know, I still hunt the mountains in my Vermont childhood, but the bachelor farmers have passed, Charlie and Floyd, as well as the town baker, Marie Briggs. So we can return home, but we do have to remember this. We are the people making memories for those who come after us. Now it's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, molletes. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I went to Oaxaca, obviously, for the food, but this is a case where you come across something unexpected. This was at the hotel, this little tiny place. And the first morning, they made molletes, which is bread that's toasted, or it could be a roll, and then a little bit of lard on top of that, brushed on, some black beans, quesillo, which is sort of a mozzarella-like cheese they make there, a little salty, and then pico de gallo on top, the relish. And so the, the cold relish and the onions and the peppers and then the warm black beans and the cheese and the bread, spectacular. So it's real, essentially a grilled cheese sandwich from Waka. <laughs> I'd never had it before, so we thought we'd bring it back to Milk Street and introduce it to our lexicon of great meals any time of day. That's right, Chris. It's a great meal to have for breakfast, lunch. I eat it sometimes for dinner when I'm eating by myself. It's for when you want to cook something but not cook a lot of something. This is the perfect thing. So you mentioned the bread. In this case, we don't usually find the type of bread that they use in Mexico for this. So you want to just buy a bakery-style bread, kind of a crusty country loaf, and slice it about a half an inch thick. We're going to use the broiler to toast the bread. And you want to really make sure you're keeping an eye on the broiler. It can go from really golden brown to black in seconds, especially if you don't know your broiler that well. Especially if you use my broiler, which, which is very good at doing just that. Okay, so we, we have the uh, bread ready. So on top of that toasted bread, we make a bean puree with canned beans, lime juice, some cilantro, and that gets spread on top. Then we top it with mozzarella cheese, which is the closest equivalent to the kind of cheese they use in Mexico. It goes back under the broiler for about five minutes till that cheese gets really nice and golden brown. And then we top it with a pico de gallo. Now, you want to use a lot of cheese. That's really, <laughs> that's really an important I part think, of this recipe. Right? I think your description of a yeah. Mexican grilled cheese kind of sets the tone for how much cheese you should use here. Now, two things. In Oaxaca, they actually use real beans, not canned beans. You know, they soak them and cook them low and slow in terracotta pots. The other thing is they do use that pork lard, asiento, which we don't have here. So if you had a little bit of lard around, you could do that too, but it's certainly not necessary. That's right. It's up to your discretion. You can make this bean puree and keep it in the fridge. That's what I do and bring it out whenever I want to make these toasts for myself. Uh, it's super easy to mix together in the food processor. So mollete is really the Mexican grilled cheese sandwich. I have to say it was probably my favorite dish that I had there. A lot of great food, but these are so simple to make and they are so delicious. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. 
You can get this recipe for molletes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll and I discuss the ethics of cooking lobsters. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be tackling a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Theo Adams. Hi, Theo. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Rochester, New York. How can we help you today? Well, I have a torch that I make creme brulee with. Oh, a propane torch, yeah. Right, and not a wussy kitchen torch, but a big one. And I have no other use for it. And I'm like, what else can I do with this thing, you know? I think there's lots of things you can do with it, don't you, Chris? Well, if you use a broiler, but you have a small job to do and you don't want to heat up a broiler for 20 minutes, because mine takes forever mm-hmm. to heat up, you could pull out that torch and do a small job. Yeah, something where you, you don't could... want to go through half an hour of heating up the I oven. I see a future for baked Alaska right there. Meringue, lemon meringue Ooh. pie, you just want to touch up the top of the meringues. Browning some crumbs on the top of something that just didn't get brown enough. French onion soup, anything that you're going to melt or brown in the oven or toast in the, in the broiler. At the top, yeah. But if you have a bunch of stuff, it's just easier to throw it in a sheet pan under the broiler. But right. If it's a, so, it's a small but thing. But I can use it like a portable broiler. Yes, so. exactly. that's exactly. Perfectly so. Yes, okay. well yeah. done. That's, yeah. that's right. Plus, that's you know, cool. I look so tough when I use it. That's what I really enjoy. I agree with you. It's fun. <laughs> it's showy. Do it. It is. It is. Well, you, it's a way of getting personal space. Yes, is it is, it is. Especially in a large family. When you're mad at the husband, yeah, you stay in your corner. Oh, I once went to a dinner party and wanted my husband to participate somewhat, right? And we brought creme brulee, so I taught him how to brulee the custard, uh, right? That's tricky, though. And it took a while because there is a technique and everything. So we get to this party, he whips out the torch, he starts to do it, and all the ladies at the party were like, oh, Jim, you're so wonderful. Look at you with your torch and this and that. And I sat there with my hand on my hip like, are you kidding me? I taught him everything he knows, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Very annoying. I I did that once. My first time I did it, I lit the sugar on fire. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So as you said, there there is is technique. There is technique. Clearly you're a good teacher. Yeah. You schooled him well. Yeah, yeah, but he never gave me credit, you know? Ooh. Oh, that's bad. Uh, that's he just rule sat number there and one sucked in it all in. Yeah, yeah. you got to yeah. give credit. Yeah. 
Well, I've gotten a lot of good ideas. You called it a portable broiler. Yeah. Perfect. Very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, I think cool. you need to start yeah. selling those, Chris. Just call them portable broilers, not propane tanks. Done. Yeah. All right. Thanks well, for calling. Bye, Theo. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you care. so much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Greg. Hi, Greg. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from New Paltz, New York. Oh, wonderful town. My son went to school there. How can we help you today? Yeah, so I purchased a pizza seal as per your recommendation, <laughs> and I love it. It's really awesome. I have great uh, results. But um, I guess the one problem I'm having is just, you know, a little bit of smoking, particularly with the flour I'm using on the peel or when I put it in. I don't know if I just have my temperature too high or... What rack is the um, pizza being cooked on in the oven? It's on the top rack, and I set it to about 550 broil. I think that was what you guys had said. You no, know, you, you just yeah just set it at 550 bake, not broil. And oh, then, well, that, 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 that would problem. help. Yeah, slight, slight <laughs> difference. And then, sure. um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think we just answered your question. I think we're done. I that's think the, we're done with that one, That's the quickest folks. problem solved ever. Yeah, not broil. Wow, no broil. <laughs> if you put it three quarters of the way up the rack, then the top okay. of the pizza should cook at the same rate as the bottom. If you have a okay. pizza of steel, okay, yeah, that means right, just well, don't I use broil. Do that. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. My well, Lord. too bad we wanted to talk to you more, Greg. But... I think he wins a hundred dollars for the shortest phone call. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay. Anyway, anyway. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks take care. Help. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a burning cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time to find out what Dr. Aaron Carroll is thinking about this week. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, This week, are you amused or upset? No, it's actually more amused. <laughs> so, so what's the topic this week? I thought we might talk about lobsters. I've seen a couple of stories in the news in the last few months about the ways that we cook them, whether it's ethical, and whether there are some crazy new ideas and how we might do that. I believed in the knife and in the sort of back-of-the-head technique, so they're supposedly dead before they hit the water. Is that is that true or not? So this is part of the problem. Lobsters are complex. They don't necessarily have a brain in the same way that we do. Their, their nervous system is distributed throughout the body more so than you would see, say, in a mammal or like a human. The brain is sort of all over the place. So there's still a large debate about even whether you know poking them in that area actually reduces their pain significantly or whether they feel pain at all. I mean, people have been talking about this, you know, pretty much since 2004 when David Foster Wallace wrote his now epically known piece in Gourmet uh, about lobsters and, you know, how we should think about the way that we're, we're killing them before we eat them. Lobsters are still pretty much the only animal we're willing to kill in the kitchen ourselves uh, when it's time to cook them. And, and a lot of people still think it's totally reasonable just to toss a live lobster in a boiling pot of water. It takes about a minute to die that way. And if we imagine it, it sounds terrible, the idea that we're boiling alive. But there's still another camp out there that argues that lobsters don't feel pain in the same way that we do, in that uh, they react to stimuli in some ways, but not necessarily in a bad way, and that being boiled alive doesn't hurt them any more than, you know, touching them. But It is debatable. Switzerland has actually put out guidelines saying we don't believe 
that we should be able to do this and telling restaurants that they can't. Um, actually asking for lobsters to be electrocuted in some way before they're actually cooked. But they have a thing, I think it's called a crustastun, which can cost thousands of dollars, but which some people argue is a way to electrocute them before we actually put them in the boiling water. But we don't even know if that works. We're, we're just not clear. There are arguments that lobsters, if you rip off their arms, they'll go right back to foraging for food and eating seconds later, in which case that's a good argument for, well, maybe this doesn't hurt. It's just part of the daily doing business of being a lobster. Uh, on the other hand, they don't like being around other lobsters. They don't like being in the light, uh, which is one of the reasons that you see them with their claws banded uh, when they're in those tanks, because they are not happy and they'll be happy to attack the other lobsters. So clearly they react to outside stimuli. There's a restaurant in Maine that got a lot of attention in the fall because the woman who owned it was arguing that she was going to get the lobsters high before she cooked them. They actually put them in a tank, and I kid you not, they, they, they burned marijuana or even sometimes breathed smoked marijuana into tanks and had them sit for three minutes. And she argued quite strongly that she could tell that the lobsters were were much less angry or much less angsty uh, when she then went and put them in the boiling pot of water. That's not scientific, of the course. Thing I the thing I like about that story is somebody had to light a joint, smoke it, and blow the smoke in the lobster's face, which is, which is some job. Yeah. <laughs> she did argue that the temperature at which the lobsters were being boiled was high enough to degrade the THC, so she wasn't giving it to her customers. Uh, but I'm not betting that a lot of people are going to follow suit and start cooking lobsters in this way. So let's back up. How do scientists determine whether an animal can feel pain or see colors? I mean, yeah. is, there, is there scientifically proven methods for going after this sort of data? You know, some animals we can tell because they are expressive enough to let us know. You know, when you step on a dog's tail and it cries, you know it's doing that. Same with a cat. With a lobster, what they're looking for is consistency in response to certain stimuli. If they react over and over to the same thing in the same way, then you get a sense of, okay, the lobster is actually, you know, something is going on. We can tell that lobsters will react to the temperature of the water. We can tell that lobsters will react to light. We know that they react to being around other lobsters. So clearly, they do take in signals and react to them in some way. That's not the same thing, though, as saying that they feel pain or that they are, you know, in a state of discomfort. It could be such a low-level reflex that it is just automatic without any kind of sensation at all. And so we don't know. You'll get camps of of scientists on both sides, some who say that the stimuli they're reacting to gives us enough sense that they must be feeling some level of uh, commotion or, or some level of angst. But you'll get other scientists who will say, no, they're such low-level creatures with distributed brainstem that they're not reacting in a conscious way uh, that we would consider them to be in pain. It's hard, however, to argue with the fact that this is the only animal, again, that we're sacrificing in our house to cook and that we're doing it in a way where we, are, we know it's taking them a minute to die in boiling water. And we, there are very few people that drop them in the pot and then hang around to watch. Often it's drop them in the pot and walk away um, and come back when they are dead. But there are probably better ways that we could end their lives before we uh, you know, put them in the pot and boil them to death. Is there a consensus 
without obviously having definitive data. Like, how would you kill a lobster based on what you, your research you've read? What, what would you do? It's such a great question. I almost think, I mean, based upon it, you almost have to tear them apart uh, because you really want to get at all the brainstem. Other people think that by, you know, just, you know, severing it, the brainstem in a couple places quickly, you could do that. But unfortunately, we don't even have good science to know if that works or where exactly would it be. And it's the kind of thing you probably would have difficulty doing as an amateur at home. I think there's an argument to be made that the electrocution might work, but that seems like an awful lot of work and it's a great expense. Um, in order to achieve our goals. So uh, there are times that I'm willing to admit, like, I don't know. (laughs) And and this is one of them. But I will say that, you know, in the past, I have cooked lobsters at home by boiling them alive. And I probably haven't done it in a decade, partially because I don't know how best to do it. But I think if we really thought about a lot of the ways that we kill many types of animals that we eat, we'd probably have to, to reconsider the methods by which we do it. Yeah, I, as you said, the difference is we have to do it in our house. Yeah. And the other animals, it's done somewhere else, packaged, and we can buy it in the supermarket. Yeah. And so I think it's like it's just we're forced to confront that decision, which of course right. makes, you know, restaurants and chefs um, and amateurs at home uh, have to think about the best way to do it, which is how you wind up with restaurants that are getting their lobsters high uh, before they serve them to people. <laughs> of all the methods we've talked about, that is the most interesting. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. I guess we still don't know the best way to kill a lobster. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. You know, I've tested many methods of humanely killing lobsters over the years, including balancing them on their heads and rubbing their bellies to lull them to sleep before dispatching them. The latest commercial alternative is the Crustastun, a $4,000 device that looks a lot like a small metal suitcase. According to the manufacturer, the crustacean is lowered into an electrified saline bath, immediately stunning the lobster and killing it outright in just 10 seconds. Now, I do admit that arguments over how to kill an animal seem either gruesome, silly, or morally insensitive, but having dispatched pigs, deer, rabbits, and chickens over the years, I believe that arguing about method is, well, a good thing. Eating meat at all is worth a lengthy discussion, but as the saying goes, if you're going to do something, do it right or not at all. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, and order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. 
and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tube Up Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. (laughs) 